And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, March 24th, 2021, along with Nats Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. We are getting closer. Eight days away, are we, from opening day, April 1st. Yes, opening day is on April Fool's Day. Fools, we are not. At least we don't think so. What do you think would happen, though, Mark, if someone tried to play an April Fool's joke on Max Scherzer on opening day, knowing, as we know, his intensity on a game day. How do you think our guy Max might react to an April Fool's joke in eight days? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh, my. I mean, there are guys who I think would handle it quite well. And then there's Max Scherzer. And uh, I would not be the one, want to be the one to try that prank. I could see him trying to prank someone else <laughs> and getting a kick out of it. But I would say the last two guys in the world I would want to try to prank on April Fool's Day if they're pitching would be Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg. Those are the last two guys. Maybe Jonathan Papelbon. I wouldn't want to mess around with that either, but I don't think we have to worry about that right now. Uh, no, not anymore. You know, it's interesting you bring up Max and Strauss because they had that incident in the dugout a few years ago, but that wasn't over an April Fool's joke, right? No, not that I know of. No, that was a little little disagreement that um, honestly probably happens more than we realize, but it happened in the open. And so for all of us to finally got a chance to see it, it made some headlines at the time, but I think they're all right. As a starting pitcher, one of the hardest things to do is when you do not feel that you did your job coming out of the game and giving five to your teammates who want you to be a good team player. It's not easy, but you got to do it. Steven Strasburg coming out of the game, not wanting to give anybody attention. So Max Scherzer would show some leadership and get on him a little bit here and talking about certain things. Now, I really like how Strasburg get up got up and didn't want to do this in front of everybody, went back in the tunnel. Those are two type A personalities, I guess. Well, Strasburg's not type A, but, you know, alpha dogs, guys who are very much into what they do. And there aren't very many people in this world who they want telling them what to do. <laughs> it maybe spilled over a little bit there, but no, everything's been fine since with those guys. Yeah. Well, baseball history is filled with great players who don't get along, right? Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig famously didn't get along. The A's of the 70s, they all hated each other. So ain't nothing wrong with a little friction every now and again. You can tweet the show at Nats underscore chat. You can email us, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join the movement as we inch ever so close to opening day, you want to join the Nats Chat Podcast, be an advertiser, be a supporter, uh, email the mastermind of all this, Tim Shovers. Again, Podcast at gmail.com. So it was supposed to be a rather quiet Tuesday in Nats Nation, and it ended up being anything but. And the biggest item has to do with the situation at third base. Very interestingly, for what ended up being a 5-all exhibition tie with the St. Louis Cardinals, it was Starling Castro, not Carter Keboom, 
as the Nats starting third baseman. Now, I think for a lot of teams, you give your third baseman to be an off day in the Grapefruit League season. Nobody thinks twice about it. In this situation, though, given how bad Keyboom has been this spring training season, given the struggles that Keyboom had last season, and given that third base is considered anything but a certainty for the Nats going into this year, this is not insignificant. So much so that Davey, it almost felt like, was getting kind of defensive during his pregame Zoom press conference saying, quote, this doesn't mean anything. We just want to see what this looks like right now. We haven't made any decisions yet on what we want to do, but we need to do it. And um, you know, we got a week. Now, Castro ends up suffering what he called a little cramp in his hamstring and leaves the game. So we'll have to monitor his health. But Mark, the third base situation, already curious, now even more curious of Castro starting at third there on Tuesday. As soon as I saw the lineup in the morning, Al, the word that came to my mind was intrigue. We've got intrigue. Now, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with getting a look at Starlin Castro at third base. He's played it in his career, 45 games with the Marlins in 2019. Their situations are going to arise over a course of a season where maybe he needs to play it. And so, of course, you get a look at him at spring training and and just make sure that everything's fine there. Here's the thing. He had not taken a ground ball there all spring. And in fact, on Friday, Davey was asked first about Luis Garcia and asked if he had been taking any grounders at third. And Davey said, no, he's only worked out at second base and shortstop. And then I followed up and said, just to ask, has Starlin Castro taken any grounders at third? And Davey kind of smiled and he says, no, he hasn't, not yet. And he said it with a little bit of a smile that said to me that he wasn't shooting down the idea altogether, just saying, if it happens, it hasn't happened yet, maybe it will happen soon. And well, it turned out it happened only a couple days later that he was uh, taking grounders at third on the backfields prior to playing in the game on Tuesday. So if you're just going to get a look at a guy and make sure that he can handle it, You do that on March 3rd, March 4th. You don't do it for the first time on March 23rd with a week to go and with a guy who you've been touting all spring long and all winter long as your starting third baseman when he's hitting 171 and quite frankly has not appeared to make the kind of adjustments and see the improvements that they've all been hoping to see from him based on what he did last year. So look, this doesn't mean that Starlin Castro is the starting third baseman on opening night. But I think we can say this for certain, and Davey pretty much admitted this. It's not a guarantee that Carter Keeboom's the starting third baseman on opening night. That is very much up in the air right now. So there's so much to this, I feel like. First of all, there's the idea of where you're at with Keeboom. You know, here's a guy who was a first-round pick for the Nationals, is supposed to be their third baseman of the future, and has been anything but over the last few years. Then there's this situation essentially being a repeat of what happened in 2020. You know, it's like the, the Yogi Berra saying, it's deja vu all over again. 2020 season, we go into it with Davey telling anyone who would listen, Carter Keeboom's going to be on every game third baseman. Carter Keeboom, it's third base for him. He's going to be our guy this year. And then what happens at the start of the season? It's as Drupal Cabrera as the Nats starting third baseman for each of the first five games of the year. Now, I know Keeboom was dealing with like a groin issue at the time, but that job ended up being anything but Keeboom's in 2020. And he didn't play well, right? Ended up getting demoted to the minor league side as the season went on. This past offseason, same thing. We're told once again, Carter Keeble, third base, his job. You know, we're going we're gonna to commit. We're going to set it and forget it, all that kind of a thing. And now we're not even out of spring training. And they're already flirting with Castro at third base. And that's another thing I would throw into this. Davey's been pretty consistent. Correct me if I'm wrong. But when he has talked about Castro in the field, he has made it clear second base is Castro's best spot. 
And if you look at the defensive metrics, they back that up. Stone Castro has actually been a pretty good defensive second baseman over the last few years. And for a defensive needy team like the Nats, I don't think you poo-poo that. Like, they need defensive excellence wherever they can find it. Castro's a plus-four defensive run saved over the last few years. So you don't move him from second unless you really have to. And I'm with you. Like, I don't think this is insignificant. I think this is telling. The timing is everything. And, you know, not to overreact, but I think you do have to really start to wonder, like, where are we going here with Kibu? I mean, if this is back-to-back years where they say they're going to go with him and then they don't even start the season with him as the every-game third baseman, man, I mean, this is really starting to feel to me like, you know, a Lucas Giolito situation where we heard all this hype, but it just never happens, at least not here. Well, and and all of that, that you, as you just explained, this is why... This is a very tenuous period for them and for him as a prospect. If they have believed all along that he could turn it around, that he was legitimately the player that they always believed that he was, then you give him all the votes of confidence publicly and privately that they had been giving, and then you put him out there to start the season, and you give him some time. You don't make him think that he is uh, needs to have his head on a swivel, where at the first sign of trouble, you've got to make a change. And now all of a sudden that can have you know long-term ramifications for a young player. So what we're seeing here is already the manager at least suggesting that they aren't 100% confident in him. And to me, if you're going to make that move, even, even if what we saw on Tuesday is not officially official that Starlin Castro is the opening day third baseman, the message you're sending Kibun is, we aren't convinced that you are. And that almost feels like to me, you've already made the call and you end up needing to remove him from the team. I mean, at least from, from the major league roster. I don't envision a scenario where Keeboom's on the roster but not playing consistently. I don't think that does anybody any good. So, you know, again, we're jumping the gun a little bit here, but it's not that hard to extrapolate this out and see a scenario where Keeboom is opening the season in what it constitutes the minor leagues right now. It's the, the alternate training site until the AAA season starts late. And if that happens, even if he starts tearing the cover off the ball, are you then going to call him up in a month? You know, where is his psyche at that point? So, yeah, this is a a big moment, not just for the the franchise and what they're doing at third base this year, but for what the ultimate future of a first-round pick is and whether he does have a future with this organization. Davey, obviously, he's not dumb. Mike Rizzo, obviously, is not dumb. They are privy to things we are not. You do wonder if they're not seeing everything maybe behind the scenes that they want to be seeing with Carter Keyboom because it is odd that they keep committing to him and then they, like, decommit. You know, that's not, it's not normal. And I, I can't recall another situation where we've had something like this, uh, especially with, like, a top-flight Nationals prospect. The other thing is they basically did nothing at third base in the offseason. Like, these weren't just empty words of, we're going to go with Keyboom at third base in 2021. Their actions backed up those words. I mean, they re-signed Josh Harrison, okay, but he's more of a super utility guy. He's not like some third baseman you say, all right, well, if Keyboom's not there, Harrison can be the guy. They don't really have other options. Like, again, they don't want to put Castro at third. It feels like they're doing this because they feel like they have to, not because they want to. So the thinking, I think, has changed here with Keyboom. And I don't know how you come back from this. I mean, I mean, of course he could. Like, he's not dead and buried or anything like that. But, man, for back-to-back years, for the plug to be potentially pulled on him, there aren't a lot of stories of prospects who have that happen, and then all of a sudden they kill it down the line. Like, it's kind of like, eh, this is kind of maybe the end for him with the Nationals. We'll see. And that's where, again, if they, at some point in the offseason, felt deep down inside, like, eh, we're not sure that he really is the guy kind of like they felt with Giolito at the time, then make your move then. 
go get yourself another third baseman and maybe include Kibum in a trade somewhere else. Now, it can always backfire, as it did with Giolito in a lot of ways. But the worst thing you can do is keep sticking with a guy that you're not fully committed to and then have to pull the plug as potentially they're doing here. Now, why they didn't go get another third baseman this winter, I I don't have a perfect answer for that. I don't have the full picture of this, but I think it's a couple of things potentially there. I mean, they were looking, they at least explored other options, as really you do with anything. You always look at everything that could be out there, and it doesn't mean that you're actively or desperately trying to find a replacement, but you always look into what's out there. And for whatever reason, Mike Rizzo did not find something that worked for him. Now, that can mean a couple things. One, it could mean that he didn't find any players that he thought were better at the price that they would cost. So that can mean in terms of free agents who might have cost a lot. I mean, look, would they have loved to get DJ LeMahieu or Justin Turner? Sure. Those guys would obviously be upgrades. LeMahieu cost a lot of money and a lot more years than maybe they were willing. And he really expressed a desire to stay with the Yankees. Turner really wanted to stay with the Dodgers. So maybe those just weren't viable options for them. So they look at that. Now you look at trades, guys like Chris Bryan of the Cubs, Eugenio Suarez of the Reds. I'm sure that there were phone calls about both of those. But when you're told that what the teams want in return is way more than you're willing to give up, you're just not going to make that move. So that doesn't mean that Mike Rizzo maybe wouldn't have rather had one of those guys, but not at the price that it would have cost them. And so it leaves them in this position. Now, maybe there could have been some other plan B, some other second tier, third tier free agent they could have signed as a fallback option here, uh, which they did not get. That I was surprised at, that they went into this basically saying, it's key boom or bust. And we kept saying in the back of our minds, okay, if it's not him, what is plan B? And the best we could come up with is Starlin Castro at third, which means Luis Garcia at second. And that's a whole nother issue there because Garcia actually has worse numbers than Kiboom at the plate this spring. So there's a, a, a big domino effect of all this. And it could, there's just a lot of questions and uncertainties there if they make this move. It's not just about who's at third. Now it's about who's at second. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, there's certainly a domino effect with something like this. The Keyboom development, not the only development on Tuesday for the Nationals. It was exhibition start number two for John Lester in that 5-0 tie with the Cardinals. His final line, one run in three and two-thirds innings. No strikeouts, uh, but just three hits allowed. All of them singles, two walks through 30 of his 51 pitches for strikes. We'll see you know, how he progresses here, but it does continue to appear as if the Nats will have Lester good to go for the start of the regular season. The good stuff in this game was he was pretty efficient. Those first three innings, he kind of cruised through them. The pitch count was low. That was good. They really wanted to get him into a fourth inning, which he got. They felt like that was the most important thing they could do in that start. So they got him there. Fourth inning, he loaded the bases. It was a walk, a couple of not that really hard hit balls. And now he's got to try to pitch out of it. And he got two outs. And then Davey decided to pull him because the pitch count was getting up there. And, you know, this is a spring training move. If this is a regular season, obviously you're letting him try to pitch out of it. They didn't think that he was ineffective. They just didn't want his pitch count to build up too much. So that's the positives. The only negatives here are that his velocity still isn't really where he wants it to be. He's throwing 88, 89 with his fastball, and he's been hoping all along they can get back up over 90, 91, maybe even hit 92. He does believe it's going to come, and he knows that you know he's behind the eight ball here. It's only two starts, and normally he should have about four of them by now. So the problem is there's just not a lot of time left. There's only one official start for him left to make in the Grapefruit League. Now, he mentioned he'd like to get two, 
and they may be trying to find a creative way to get them another one in either a simulated game, a B game, a minor league game, something like that after camp breaks. And so that's why I think we talked about before that the actual rotation order to start the year may not be exactly what we would think of as one, two, three, four, five, because they need to get guys the right work and keep them on the right schedules. I could see a scenario where Lester ends up actually being the fifth starter because they want to get him one more tune-up before then, even if it's in a simulated game against teammates. So to the point of Lester's velocity, his velocity last season in terms of the four-seam fastball velocity career worst, 89.8 miles per hour for Sports Info Solutions. It's lovely that he wants it to be in the low 90s for this season. That may not be possible anymore. Like that just may not be who John Lester is anymore. And the thing that jumped out to me with the final line from that game on Tuesday, the zero strikeouts, he's not a strikeouts pitcher. He he averaged like 6.2 strikeouts per nine innings last season. John Lester is one of those guys who's going to be putting balls in play. That's why that Nats defense matters so much. You know, he's not a Scherzer or a Strasburg to where you can count on him, you know, 10 strikeouts in seven innings, that kind of a thing. So they really do need the defense behind Lester, especially for those starts to be on point. I just don't know. Like, you, he may just be in that high 80s territory now with the velocity. And of course, when that's the case, you put more balls in play and your accuracy, your control matters that much more. So if he's got that, he can still be effective, but you're certainly not blowing anyone away. Uh, with a fastball in the high 80s. Now, Joe Ross pitched as well in this game on Tuesday, pitched in relief, just his third official outing of spring. I know, you know, he's done uh, work beyond just the exhibition games, but we bring up Joe Ross because, okay, we've said for a while, it looks like he's going to be the number five guy in that Nats rotation, but also emerging on Tuesday. And what was, again, a news-filled Tuesday for the Nationals is this Eric Fetty news. And it's complicated. We'll just kind of bottom line it. The thinking had been that of the three guys fighting for that five spot in the rotation, Ross, Fetty, Austin, both, it was Fetty who still had a minor league option. According to Jesse Doherty, the Washington Post, that's actually no longer the case, that an arbiter has ruled in favor of Fetty. He does not have a minor league option. And so the Nats, when it comes to Ross versus Fetty versus both, don't have anyone with any minor league options here. That could certainly impact, Mark, how the Nats put together the season opening roster. Yeah, this is potentially very significant news that Jesse broke, and uh, I was able to confirm it later on. It's a complicated thing, and I know for fans, the options thing is always confusing for everyone. Just keep in mind this. Most players get three option years in which they can be sent up and down from the majors to the minors with no penalty, as many times as you want. You can have that for three years. Some guys get a fourth option year for different reasons. Either they were called up quickly, they had injuries. There are exceptions that are made there. And a year ago, this was already the case for Fetty in 2020, where he had the fourth option, and that was going to be a detriment to him, a benefit for the team to be able to use that. They actually did option him at the end of spring training, or what we thought was the end of spring training in 2020. But then when they came back four months later to their summer training camp, he's now part of that camp. He made the roster and he stayed in the big leagues all year. So it didn't appear that the option counted. Well, apparently it now been ruled that it does. Okay, here's why this is important. All three of those guys, Ross, Voth, and Fetty, now have to make the roster. If they don't, they have to be exposed to waivers and another team could claim them. Now, would that happen? I don't know. But if the Nationals are concerned about having pitching depth, and think about what the starting pitching depth is behind those guys, far less experienced. They don't really have that obvious next guy up that they can call on. They really want to keep all these guys in the system. And the thinking was, you have one of them, probably both in your bullpen as a long man. 
The other one, Fetty, could start every fifth day at AAA. That's not going to be the case anymore unless one of them passes through waivers. I feel like Fetty would get claimed for sure if they DFA him. I'm not so sure about Voth because the way he struggled last year, maybe they slide him through. But there's a decision now coming. They either got to keep both guys in the bullpen and have two long men, which I'm not sure is really an ideal situation, or you got to attempt to slip one of them through waivers and hope they go unclaimed. It's entirely possible they lose one of these guys because of it. So I was going to ask you, so you think it would be Voth who'd be the most likely to be exposed to waivers? That's just my hunch. And because of he really struggled last year and beyond that doesn't have the pedigree that Fetty did. Fetty's a first round pick. I know it's been a while. I know that doesn't really mean anything down the road, but, you know, seen as more of a name guy who maybe has a higher ceiling and maybe other teams still view him as a guy who could, you know, do something in the big leagues, whereas Voth was not as highly touted a prospect, had some success in the big leagues, but doesn't have the pure stuff and isn't really thought of in the same way. So my hunch would be if one of the two of them was more likely to pass through waivers, it would be Voth. And if you're the Nationals and you said you're going to have to lose one of them or take the risk, I feel like they might be more willing to lose Voth than Fetty. But I mean, you know, there are five, six teams out there I can think of, you know, the Pirates, the Orioles, the Tigers, those types of teams that if you get a pitcher that's suddenly available to you essentially for free, and you can just put him in your rotation as your number four or five starter, there are teams that will absolutely take that chance with at least one, if not both of those guys. Yeah, uh, I agree. I don't think it's a given anyone makes it through waivers uh, with this situation. You know, again, we don't want to put everyone to sleep with what exactly Fetty was contesting, but it's worth noting his agent is Scott Boris, and this is what Scott Boris does, okay? He finds the loopholes, he figures out ways to get every last penny possible, every last good thing possible for his clients, and he pulled it off again here with Fetty. <laughs> the Boris is a mastermind with this stuff, removing that fourth minor league option. Let me just say in this case, and and I I don't know the legality of it, what's the right answer or the wrong answer, but just on a personal level, I do feel better for Eric Fetty because this guy, even if by the letter of the law, he should have still been optionable, that's essentially now five option years for him. And that's not right, you know, just on a human level, that wouldn't have been right for him to have to go to AAA again for a guy who has more than spent his time going up and down like that and, and deserves a chance to find out if he is a big league pitcher for good. Now let's see what happens. One way or another, he's going to be pitching in the big leagues. It's just a matter of will it be with the Nationals or will it be with somebody else now? Yeah, and you brought it up. This is where, you know, we just talked about domino effects. This is where the Nats not having a lot of pitching depth hurts them because now they're kind of handcuffed by this Fetty ruling because they don't have a lot of depth and so they don't want to risk losing him or both or anybody else. When you look at the Nationals in the context of the entire National League, right, the standard by which everyone's being judged these days is the Dodgers. And what stands out as much as anything about the Dodgers is their incredible depth. They have so many options at so many different positions. And, you know, like for me, I know it's one of my biggest concerns with the Nats. If everyone stays healthy, the Nats can have a really good year. But if they don't, or if guys struggle, or, you know, guys aren't panning out, i.e. Keyboom, you don't have many other real options. And that, to me, is a real concern. The Nats are lacking that organizational depth. Teams like the Dodgers, like the Rays, they bombard you. They have so many different options. You know, the Rays have basically like a right-handed a lineup against righty pitching and a lineup against lefty pitching. They have like two different teams. Nats don't have that. Nats don't have anything close to that. So I felt like this Fetty scenario kind of captured that of depth is a concern for the Nats. And if guys aren't available for whatever reason, that's going to be a problem in 2021. Especially when it comes to rotation depth. And this has been going on for a while now. We've talked about it, how 
they've drafted a lot of pitchers in the first round, and a lot of them have not panned out. You got to go way back for someone that's basically Steven Strasburg is the last drafted pitcher by the Nationals who made it to the big leagues with the Nationals and stuck with the Nationals for a long time. Yes, there's been Giolito, Jesus Luzardo, some other guys who've gone on elsewhere, but in-house of their own, it has not worked out. And those are the kind of guys that you always need that next group, of that next wave coming up so that you can call on them when you need someone. So you do always have guys with options, which as we've seen now, they do not have. The next wave of at least legitimate prospects in the pitching department is Jackson Rutledge and Cade Cavalli, and they're not big league ready yet. It's going to be a while for them. So this is where we may see them have to ultimately call upon someone like Rogelio Armenteros, Ben Bramer we saw last year. Will Crow was a guy who did fit that description, and he was traded to the Pirates in the Josh Bell deal. So there is a lack of uh, reliable or, or at least you know viable starting pitching options for them to have at AAA. And that may be why they ultimately decide here, even though it's not their ideal scenario, they may have to keep both Voth and Fetty in their big league uh, bullpen just to make sure they have them because you know you're going to need them to start eventually. Cannot emphasize enough how much the Nats need Rutledge and Cavalli to pan out and for those guys to blossom for the Nats and be staples for the Nats in their rotation for years to come, especially with the Scherzer contract expiring after this year. So you just mentioned Josh Bell. He has had an excellent exhibition season. He's one of multiple Nats who've had very good Grapefruit League seasons. Victor Robles has done very well. Yadiel Hernandez has done well, kind of making things interesting when it comes to that fourth outfielder spot. You know, I know people still feel like it's Andrew Stevenson's to lose, but Hernandez has done a good job. And then on the flip side are the Nats' two best batters who've not done so well so far in exhibition season. And we all know the caveats of it's spring training. We don't read too much into these things, right? Mike Rizzo loves to say it, back of the baseball card, that's what you focus on. But as we get ever so closer to the start of the regular season, it is worth noting as we speak here on the Nats Chat Podcast, Juan Soto has a slash line this exhibition season of 207, 281, 207. His slugging percentage is the same as his betting average. Is that good? Uh, no, it's not supposed to go that way. Trey Turner's slash line, interestingly, does include a 359 on base. He's drawn eight walks, but he's batting 194. He's slugging 226. Um, I don't want to say anyone should be worried, but should we just completely ignore these results as well? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No, I don't think we should totally ignore them. Now, look, if there's any two guys on the roster that I'm not concerned about their ability to hit big league pitching and that they're going to be just fine when it's all said and done, it's Juan Soto and Trey Turner, of course. But you would like to see some signs of it from them in spring training, especially in the last week of spring training. Now, in Trey's case, he has hit the ball hard. There have been a, a decent number of line drives and, and balls in the outfield that have been caught. And so that might be less of a worry. In Soto's case, he's hitting a lot of ground balls. He's pounding a lot of choppers. His swing path is probably not where he wants it to be. Certainly where not where it has been throughout his career to date. So I do think that's a little bit of something there. I, I, it's just, it's evidence that his swing is not where it needs to be yet. Now, if there's anybody I trust to figure it out, it's him along with Kevin Long. Remember famously, in the uh, 2019 postseason, for a few games there, Soto was not feeling right and went after the game, right after the game, went down in the cage with Kevin Long. They started work on, on some things and almost instantaneously, Soto felt it. He figured out what it was. He said, that's it. I got it. Tore the cover off the ball the rest of the postseason, famously with what he had done for them. The 1-0. Swing a fly ball, well hit to left field. Way back goes this one. It's got a chance. It's going, going, and long gone up onto the railroad tracks. Welcome to the World Series, Juan Soto. He will figure it out, of course. But you'd like to see a little bit of evidence of it here in spring training, especially in the last week of camp. You'd like to see him start barreling up a few balls, a little better swings, all that kind of stuff. His eye at the plate is still good. I mean, he's taking the right pitches. He's not expanding the zone, I don't think. I think it's it's really just swing mechanics. So he's got about a week to figure it out. And to me, of all the remarkable things about Juan Soto and his career to date, to me, the most remarkable thing is that he's never truly been in a slump, at least not for more than like three days. A couple of times, I remember we've asked Davey about, oh, you're a little bit concerned about Soto. And sure enough, by that night, He's three for four with a couple doubles. Like he has never struggled for any significant length of time. And I don't know if there's anybody at any age I can say that I've ever seen that be the case with. Yeah, I was I was just gonna bring that up. I think that is such a key point about Juan Soto because even some of like the other great nationals hitters over the years, they were in some ways notorious for their slumps. Like Bryce Harper could slump, Ryan Zimmerman could slump. Soto doesn't slump. And I, I think when you combine that with the fact that it's not just like well, he had a great rookie season. We think he's awesome. Like, no, he's had a first three seasons that have been not just great, but like historically great. Like he's being comp to Ted Williams. So there's a body of work here where he's not some flash in the pan. We got to worry about like a sophomore slump or something like that. Like, no, this is who he is. Like he's legit. He's off to one of the great starts any player has ever gotten off to. So, you know, we're not preaching panic. We did think though it was worth at least mentioning. I mean, the, the numbers are brutal. When you're slugging what you're batting, uh, that's not the way it's supposed to go. But like you said, Juan Soto will figure it out, and uh, he'll end up being just fine. All right, we owe you guys a story time. It's been a it's been a while since we've done story time with Mark on the Nats Chat podcast, and he's got an interesting one, kind of an offbeat one for today's installment of the show. But I feel like this could be maybe the best one yet. So here we go. Ooh, that's a that's a high bar to reach here. Um, 
Uh, we'll see. We'll see how everyone likes it. I've been trying to just tell spring training stories here so far. I do have some regular season one that we'll get to once we're in the regular season. And one of my favorite spring training stories that occurred in Vieira and involves Gio Gonzalez, who I know you just threw a shot at him in, the, in our last show. I mean, <laughs> he had a really, really rough relief outing for the Marlins, and you just threw him under the bus and drove over him on that one. He got one out. He gave up eight runs. Come on. It was bad. It was bad. But as I said, this was always one of the most popular nationals that they've had. Just everyone who comes in contact with him likes him because he is has such a bubbly personality, is so friendly, is so talkative and chatty. Even when he's on the mound in games, you know, he's he's talking to guys, he's talking to himself, he's always smiling. So everyone was especially excited for him a few years ago when during spring training, his uh, fiance at the time, now wife Leah, had their first child, Enzo. Good Italian name, Al. I think you would like that. Beautiful. So he has the baby. He lives in Miami, so he leaves camp for a couple of days, obviously, for that. And now he's scheduled to pitch. And the Nationals, and I believe it was Dusty Baker as the manager at this point, was, were telling him, hey, if you want to take a couple of days, it's okay. You don't have to come back and pitch. And Gio was like, no, no, no. I, I, I want to stay on schedule. It's spring training. I want to make sure that I don't fall behind. I'm, I'm close by in Miami. I can come up there and pitch. And so he did without having you know, thrown in between at all. It's not like he was in the hospital corridor playing catch with his uh, soon-to-deliver to uh, fiance. So he comes in, he pitches. I honestly don't even remember how he pitched that day. I think it was fine, but not great, but it was fine. But more importantly, he was essentially pitching on no sleep. Now, Al, you know how this works. You have two young children, including a very young one. How much time did you take off from work after your children were born? Oh, like a week. Okay. A week and a half, maybe. Yeah. So I was a week also when my son Brian was born. And honestly, the only reason I even came back quite that soon, it happened to be in season. The reason I came back was because Steven Strasburg was making his first start back from Tommy John surgery. And I felt like, oh, this is probably a game I should be at. So that was one week. I covered that game and then I took a few more days off. And then I wasn't traveling for a little while there. It's an exhausting thing <laughs> to have a newborn child in your home. So here's Gio trying to pitch on no sleep a newborn child. And his interview that afternoon with us was basically 10 minutes of, I describe it as gobbledygook. It was incoherent. And again, I love Gio. He's the kind of guy that he comes across on TV a lot better than he does in print because you're focused more on his facial expressions and his just kind of the general point of what he's trying to make. And then as a, as a re, uh, writer, when you're done, you go back and you re-listen to the tape and you transcribe it to put your quotes into an article. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone back and listened to Gio Gonzalez and been like, this is unusable. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. <laughs> All due respect to Gio, he's not a real wordsmith here. Okay. He gets his point across, but it may not be grammatically exactly right. So I'm going to read for you. I still have the quote. I've saved this, of course. I have his quote in which he was asked what the last few days had been like, the chaos of having the child, then coming back and pitching. All right, here is the quote from Gio Gonzalez. What's it been like? It's like being a dad. It's been great. It's a little tiring because you want to be there and help them out as much as possible, but you've got to get back to work. As far as the whole process, it was exciting to be a father and then all of a sudden come back to work and play baseball. You felt like a little kid as an adult. I had a blessing in disguise. Leah, my fiance. I'm just happy that she's healthy and she created a beautiful little boy. I'm glad he took all her looks. Hopefully I can teach him a thing or two. Hopefully he gets her brains too. Now, did you get all that? 
This is one of those that I didn't realize, none of us realized until we went back to transcribe it, a particular phrase that he put in there. And I don't know if you picked up on it. I'm going to read it again. I had a blessing in disguise. (laughs) I didn't pick up on that. He referred to the birth of his child as a blessing in disguise. I don't think that's what he meant. I'm not sure Gio understood what blessing in disguise is, but the birth of your of your son is not a blessing in disguise. It's just a blessing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gio needed help with the idiom there. And that was just one of, a, you know, six or seven quotes from that day that just made no sense at all. And, um, you know, I've always enjoyed keeping that. And, and few of us have some fun reliving that story every once in a while when we're talking about Gio Gonzalez. But look, as a father myself, and as you know, too, you're not very coherent in that first week. <laughs> and so I completely understand why that was the case. But for a guy who already, you know, struggled at times to, to string together full, complete, you know, grammatically correct quotes, this was an all-timer. Yeah, you're not coherent those first few weeks and you're pretty useless those first few weeks because you have no idea what you're doing. And I, I, I you know, we, we still probably largely don't have much idea with what we're doing. So I, I'm just curious, like when you're typing up quotes from someone, do you clean them up? Do you do you try to like fix them up so that they sound what he meant to say? Or do you like literally transcribe what he said? This is a little bit of a thing within the journalism industry that there are different feelings on this. Some believe that you should print it as is verbatim, everything exactly as they say. Some say, no, you fix a little bit here and there to make sure that it makes grammatic sense. And, you know, with as long as it's not changing the meaning of what the guy said, that it's OK to do that. I fall into that category. Very few of us talk in perfect grammar all the time. It just it doesn't happen that way. So when you see it in print, you need to make it in a way that is not confusing to the reader. You don't ever want a reader to have to pause on something or be confused by what you've uh, what you've written. So I do clean up a little bit here and there. You know, hopefully not trying to to change anything to the effect that it changes the meaning of it. But it is a little bit of a tricky thing, and it's a little bit of a there's a debate within the journalistic community of what the appropriate way to do that is. With Geo, I can tell you there had to be a lot of cleaning up. Otherwise, it would be just a lot of run-on sentences that don't really go anywhere. My favorite thing about Geo was how he would wear his emotions on his sleeve. And, you know, not always to the betterment of the ball club. I mean, when guys would make errors, he would not react in the best possible way. And it was like its own little movie was watching Geo. Like there was the game. And then there was watching Gio as part of the game. And like his theatrics were just hysterical. And like I said, not always in a good way, but they were definitely worth paying attention to. Yeah, uh, you know, you're right. There should have been a Gio cam on him every night that he was pitching to see that. And the thing is, you know, with some guys, teammates don't like that. They don't want to see that, you know, slump of the shoulders when somebody makes an error or whatever. I feel like in Gio's case, nobody ever gave him a hard time over it because they knew that it was genuine. They knew that he was a good guy, that he was a good teammate. He One of his other quirks would be every single post-game interview that he would do, he would always start it by complimenting somebody else, whether it was his catcher, a teammate. He would ask the PR staff, hey, did anybody reach a milestone in the game tonight? Just so he could make sure to congratulate them before talking about himself. So, I mean, he, he genuinely wanted to be seen as a good teammate, somebody who supported all of, uh, all of his teammates. But that's why sometimes after, you know, hey, Gio, you just pitched eight scoreless innings. You know, how'd that feel? Hey, first, I just want to say, you know, uh, uh, congrats to Wilson Ramos on his 500th career hit because that was really important. No, maybe it wasn't that important, but it was nice of you to at least be thinking of him. 
Yeah, that is a nice thing to do. I'll, I'll give him, and you're right. He did used to do that. It was always interesting watching him do that in the post-game pressers. So, well, uh, great stuff once again. We want to thank everyone for the continued feedback and support regarding the podcast. If you missed our chat with Max Scherzer, Max was awesome talking about it. A lot of the larger issues facing baseball, we had that in our most recent installment of the Nats Chat Podcast, so definitely download that if you haven't done so already. Remember, at Nats underscore chat on Twitter, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We are on the doorstep of the 2021 Nats season. Cannot wait. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Swanson puts it on the ground, and there's another quick inning for Gio Gonzalez. Daniel Murphy makes the play. He just looked at the umpire and said, good job today. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.